Well, good morning, Disciples Church. What a joyful time so far we've had. The Lord's table and fellowship together and worshiping our good God. Um, excited about today's time in his word. If you grab your Bibles with me and turn to the letter of James, you'll find it in the back of your Bible, late part of the New Testament, just after Hebrews, just before 1 Peter. If you don't have a Bible, would like to follow along with us in the Holy Scriptures this morning. We have Bibles in the back in front of the sound booth there. And like we always want to make sure you know, if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take one of those with you home. No greater gift we could give you than the Holy Word of God to study and know. We're in uh, week seven of a brand new sermon series through the letter of James. And while it's only three pages long in your Bible, as we're discovering already, it's chock full of amazing, good counsel from our holy God through his mouthpiece, James. Today we get the pleasure to study verse 16 and 17 of chapter 1 in a sermon that I've titled, Our Good and Unchanging God. Look at it with me. James chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He begins in verse 16 to just simply say, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. He's talking to blood-bought family, other Christians who have been dispersed through different regions in this time of the early church and And he's writing to encourage them. He's writing them to to point out that their faith in God must remain. It must continue at work to be true faith. That God saves us. He gives us faith to trust in him. Even in the hardest situations and times. And in this most recent stretch of the text, he's talked about the fact that, that God does not tempt or lure people to sin. That's the work of our own flesh. That's the work of of. Workers of lawlessness and those lost apart from God. And so he says, don't be deceived. Don't, don't, don't be deceived to think about God wrongly. To, to, to think that he is someone who would tempt you to sin. In a world with so many deceptions and misconceptions that man has come up with in our sin about God and about how things work. James is, is bringing a great help of reminder in a simple moment like this to his hearers and thereby then to us that we'd have a right understanding of God, that we would not be deceived. Before we move into the great truths that we see in verse 17, I want us to rightly understand deception. Deception is the work of sinful men and the great deceiver himself. The fallen angel Satan is the great deceiver. Deception and manipulation and lies have been his game from the beginning. Jesus spoke clearly about Satan in John 8, 44. Speaking to those who are lost and in their sin apart from God, saying, you are 
of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus says that Satan is the father of lies, the doctor of deception. Why? Because there is no truth in him. He doesn't stand for truth because truth belongs to God. Satan is opposed to God. He is not upright. Satan is always manipulating for his own selfish gain. It is his character. He lies because he is a liar. He's depraved in every way. His sole purpose is to come against God and his righteousness, and therefore to come against God's people in an effort to trip them up. So James brings a good and needed warning here. Do not be deceived. He says this because efforts for deception and lies are all around us at every turn. Peter describes Satan in this way. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter 5.8 See the deceiver for what he is. See him prowling around like a hungry lion, seeking someone to devour. Church, James is saying, don't be deceived. Peter is saying, be watchful. Why? Because this is not our home. We are in a foreign land as newborn Christians. We belong to God and to his kingdom. In the meantime, until he takes us home, we are sojourners in the here and now. We have to understand Satan doesn't take vacations. Deception and temptation and sin lurks at the door waiting for a moment of doctrinal or moral carelessness to pounce. Satan wants nothing more than to offer up the trap. To bait us with wealth, pleasure, fame, beauty, acceptance, substances, popularity, sexual exploration, and on and on. What we must see is that the deception of the enemy, though, is most of the time very subtle. It's not... In your face, it's, it, it, it's tucked in, it's, it's blended in to what we would consider normal in society. It's in little TV ads, and billboards. It's in kids' movie plots and family TV shows. It's in positive messages given by helpful organizations. It is all around us, deception It's tricky. It's sneaky. Are you aware of the constant deception of the enemy that is coming at us and our families all the time? Beloved, we must be watchful. We must not be deceived. Now, deception is not only coming at us from Satan and his fellow workers of lawlessness. It is in us. 
The Bible is clear to say it's in our flesh. It's, it's the flawed moral character that every human being is born with since the fall of Adam. Just as James was, was clear to point out that our temptation just a few verses ago in chapter 1, we studied last week, is ultimately from the lure of our own sin and fleshly desires. Deception is the same. Jeremiah says it well, speaking of our fleshly heart, in Jeremiah 17, verse verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? It is for this reason that we're careful not to live or be persuaded by our feelings Because our feelings are fleshly. All too often, I'll hear Christians mistakenly say, hey, we've made this decision, or I think I'm going to go this way, because they feel it is right. And really, that's a paganistic way of doing life. That's an anti-God, anti-truth of his word way of living that we would make our decisions based on our feelings, our feelings that are ultimately in our flesh, deceiving and corrupt. This is one of our biggest jobs as your shepherds, as pastors of the local church, that Rob, Matt, and I, in this current season, with more to join us in the coming season, our job is to help you test your feelings, to put them on the table and Hold them up next to God's holy word and bring them to prayer and to point you to truth that you would not be led by your feelings as a blood-bought Christian, but instead you'd be led by the holy and wonderfully awesome word of God to direct us and shape us and mold us in every way. The Holy Spirit that works in conjunction with the Holy Spirit's word, not apart from it would confirm and affirm these things in line with Scripture, again, not apart from it. We must be alert and aware that deception is all around. It's found in people who claim the name of the Lord Jesus. It's found in people we love deeply. It's found in common day things that we perceive as normal and even good. It's found within us. It's found, church, within some of our best intentions to do the right thing. And so I join James in speaking to you, my beloved brothers and sisters, to say, do not be deceived. May we link arms in God's holy word and fight this fight, this daily fight that is before us. Realize that this is a a way of transition to our next verse, verse 17. See, Satan doesn't need people to love him to be successful at tripping us up. Often, Satan's greatest deception is to get people to simply think wrongly about God. This is what he did in the garden. And what he has really been doing ever since. This is the journey 
that many of you, our core church family, has been on in the last 10 years in the rebirth of this historic church, replacing many things you once misunderstood or believed about God. Replace them with what the Bible actually teaches about these things. So many of you in this room have grown so much in your worship and your devotion to God by simply growing a better understanding of who he is and how he works. I praise God for this. Many of you are just joining us in this new and exciting season that we're in. And you're in need of a church family. You're in need of church shepherds who will love you in truth and love. Who, who will fight? N- not to tell you what you want to hear, but to give you what God has given us in his written word and to do it faithfully. This is my prayer for you who are investigating Disciples Church, what it may look like to commit to be part of this growing family and all that God's doing in and through us. If you're new at Disciples Church, I'm excited for you because you just don't know yet what you don't know. (laughs) And how good it is when you move from misinformation and deception to God's wonderful truth and all that he's doing. And the laughter in that comment is a lot of the family's way of saying amen. Because they've been on this journey and they know the things I'm speaking of. And I pray you would join us. How wonderful and good it has been. I can't wait. I can't wait to cry with you as God does this work. I can't wait to sing with you to our glorious God as he does this great work in and through us for his glory and others good and our eternal joy. So, in the context of this first chapter of James, he's saying, don't be deceived to think that God tempts people to sin. No, think rightly about God, which is the emphasis of verse 17 and the focus of the rest of this morning's sermon. So look at verse 17 with me. Three parts will break this verse apart. And man, there's so much good stuff here. I'm I'm excited. Verse 17, let's read it in its entirety. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. King David sings of the goodness of God in Psalm 100, verse 5. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Jesus helps his listeners understand this truth when he said in Matthew 7, 11, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? We have to see the goodness in God's nature. We spoke to this heavily last week, that God is good. All that God is and does is perfectly good. And he alone is the final standard of what is good. Jesus said in Luke 18, 19, 
No one is good but God alone. No one in their nature and their very being is good and perfect like God is. Now, not only is God good and the very definition of what is good and holy, everything he does is perfect and good. Everything he creates is perfect and good. 1 Timothy 4.4 For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. It is sin and pride and selfishness in man and fallen angels that have made or caused us to take the good creation and good gifts of God and turn them into things for sin and addiction and pain and suffering. Money is not evil. It's man's craving for money that is evil. Alcohol is not evil. It is man's overindulgence in it that is sinful and hurtful. Food is not evil. It is our over-desire to consume or to comfort ourselves with food that is sinful. And I could go on and on with the good gifts of God's creation that we have manipulated and abused in our sin. Even the things that God ordains and does within our sinful, broken world that could be seen by us to seem wrong or out of bounds in our flesh to judge things in such a way, even as Job struggled with, was corrected by God. These things cannot be wrong for God to do because it is God who does them. You must understand this truth and it must correct your thinking. William Perkins, I think, said it best. I really want you to listen to this and I pray that it really begins to sink in and shape the way you think about God. Here it is. We must not think that God does a thing because it's good and right. But rather, the thing is good and right because God does it. Because God is good. Before we move on, let me just ask you. Do you give God the thanks he deserves for all that he constantly gives us? Do you see how God is constantly providing and all that he is entrusting to us? Do you see these things? Are you thankful for them? Do you see all the ways that he is sustaining you? Simple things, so many things that we take for granted. James is saying every good gift and perfect gift is from above. Every. Are you thankful to God for every good and perfect gift? 
when your car starts in the morning, that is a good gift from God. But how often, as you climb into your car daily, are you only thinking about the next car that you want? How it's just frustrating you and not quite what you want. What about every time you get to eat fresh or hot food? That is a good gift of God. But how often are we not thankful for the simplistic nature of fresh or hot food, but instead griping at something within it that we don't like? When you get to hug or hold a loved one, that is a good gift from God. But how often do we miss the gift of loved ones because we're focused on other things in the busyness of our day? When you get to open your Bible and study God's declared word in your language, That is a good gift from God. But how often do you simply leave it sitting on the shelf or in the car so it's there for next Sunday? When you wake up to a new day, when you stand up and your brain works to tell your nerves and your muscles to do that action, and your feet hold you up straight. That's a good gift of God. And yet how often are we simply bitter at the responsibilities before us that day and not grateful for all that God has given us and entrusted to us? There's one day in particular we're probably more gripey than most. Mondays. But God woke you up. And, and those nerve endings and the brain is working. And all of the simplistic gifts that are before you, he is at work. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Amen? Psalm 106, verse 1. In Psalm 34, verse 8, King David declares, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lion suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. If if your heart is constantly looking for and and longing for the next thing, the next event, the next encounter, you're probably missing out on the good and perfect gifts of God. For those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Amen? Let's look at the next part of the verse. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights. James is presenting God as the Father of lights here in this verse. It's another way of saying He is the Father of all good things. God is Creator. 
He's the source of all that we have and enjoy. Psalm 136, 4 through 9. To him who alone does great wonders, his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. Consider with me the fact that we are good at disrespecting the creative work of God with our utter lack of awe for all that he has made and done. We're so guilty of making our days and our focus about us. We are utterly bathed in the goodness of the mighty hand of God, and yet lack a resounding and ongoing praise for his creative and sustaining power. This is what we sang about earlier today in the song, Where Were You? Look with me at God's response to Job in the text. Job 38, 4-12, God replies, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb. And when I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come no farther and here shall your proud waves be Stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? I could read on and on. Amazing, huh? God is amazing. God, you are amazing. And he is due our praise and our faithful trust in him. He is God, church. He is power, he is love, he is life, he is worthy, he is the father of lights. Romans 11, 33-36, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. 
To him be glory forever. Amen. This is where the famous doxology came from. This set of scriptures in the end of Romans 11. A song that the church has sung for ages and ages. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. That, that's the doxology and that comes from this. But does the church really get how significant this passage is? He is the creator who has chosen to invite us into his eternal epic. We must understand that we have arrived on his scene. A scene already in progress. Who are we? It is his and it belongs to him, all of it. And we are bathed in the goodness of the Father of lights. We have to get back to this understanding. Because every day that we try to make life about us, we are trying to direct something that is immovable, making life very frustrating and hard for us. He is the Father of lights. What would it look like to truly wake And walk each day in a heart and a declaration of praise to God for all of his oversight of our very existence. Joe rightly got this truth about God, even in great despair, great loss, waking up to horrific news. Job got it right when he understood and declared that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And no matter what that situation is, he is to be praised. He said, blessed be the name of the Lord. Genesis chapter 1, 1 through 3, the beginning of our story. In the beginning, God, who is eternal, created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was empty and formless mass, cloaked in darkness. And the Spirit of God was hovering over its surface. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. A clue as to what someone may be like and capable of can be found in something they made or did. We can take the same peek at God by looking at what he has made. And the biggest thing that God has made that we can see with our naked eye is the galaxy that sits around our planet in the big sky before us. And one of the coolest parts of God's creative work, in my opinion, is light. I shared this with our church family years ago, and I was preparing for this morning, and I, and I thought of this, and I thought, what a cool moment as we look at the Father of Lights to be reminded of just a taste of what God has done. Light, church, is really, really fast. Really, really fast. It travels at 186,000 miles per second. How fast is that? Well, in the time it takes 
needed to snap my fingers just once, a ray of light can circle the earth seven times. That's pretty fast, huh? Way faster than the flash. (laughs) Sorry. It has to be fast because the universe is so big. For example, when you step outside in the ridiculous Bakersfield heat and you feel the warmth on your face, literally feel it like a hot lamp, right? On a sunny afternoon. That warmth left the surface of the sun eight minutes ago. To get an idea of how fast that is, to repeat the 93 million mile journey back to the sun, the fastest jet ever made, flying nonstop, 24 hours a day, would take 127 years to get there. Okay? But God gets it here in eight minutes. Light is just one little part of God's creative palette and design. And yet, a beam of light covering 93 million miles in eight minutes to warm my cheek is a pretty radical thing. Mind-blowing, even. And it's just a taste of what God can do. The universe is just one of the pieces of art that God has made that hangs on his wall. Think about that. It is his creation. It's not even him. It's just a hint of how fantastic and amazing he is. God is not as big as the universe. Do you get that? He is way bigger. He just spoke a word and the Genesis was. And the universe hung in perfect place. If a beam of light travels 93 million miles in eight minutes, a light year is how far light travels in 365 days. A light year is equal to 5.33 trillion miles. 5.33 trillion miles. So what does it mean about God when astrophysicists recently discovered what they believe to be the farthest object from Earth. A tiny galaxy, a light year, 5.33 trillion miles, right? The tiny galaxy, they believe, is 13 billion light years away. 13 billion, 5.33 trillions. Does anyone have an idea how far it is from here to Atlanta? (laughs) 3,000 miles. What about 13 billion light years? Psalm 33, 6 and 9. The Lord merely spoke and the heavens were created. He breathed the word And all the stars were born. For when he spoke, the world began. It appeared at his command. Who is God? 
God is the one who makes light fly. Amen? Praise be to the Father of lights. Now, if that wasn't enough, James is not done laying a massive foundation for who God is and how he works. Maybe the biggest part of the declaration of verse 17 is found in the third part. Let's look at it together. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In a world that is always changing, the one who sits on the throne over it all is unchanging. God is constant. He's not swayed or moved or unsettled in any way. Nothing surprises him, unseats him, or causes him to shift. This is the very important doctrine of the immutability of God. Immutable is a Latin word that means not changeable. God, in his being, in his perfections, in his will, in his purposes, in his ordinations, and his promises, does not change in any way. He has always been and will always be exactly the same. God himself declared this most specifically in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Think about that for a moment. If there was ever a people of, who are unfaithful, who were unable to deliver, who change all the time, who never finish, And stay the course. It is us, right? If God was moved or swayed by our actions and lack of action, we would be consumed by his righteous judgment. But God set out to deliver a people of his choosing to save them from their deserved death and to secure them in his steady and eternal grip. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Why is this good news? This is good news. Because in a world where nothing is certain, God is certain. Amen? In a world where people and circumstances shift on a dime, where promises are made And then broken without delay, God is faithful. God is constant. God is certain and stable. He's unmoved. He is dependable in every way. The immutability of God is one of the very core foundations that makes God to be God. He is eternal, necessary, free from all composition, 
and devoid of all potential. That's a good thing that God is devoid of potential. Why? Because he is complete. He is pure and complete. He is unmoved and never altered. Consider it this way. Any improvement or shift in conviction or change in position would mean he was ever so slightly wrong and needing improvement. Catch that? True change means a shift from what was. This cannot be God's way, for God was, is, and always will be perfect, complete, satisfied, and holy. Historic, orthodox Christian theologians have held that God is immutable, that he is unchanging in his essence, knowledge, and will. Yet, do the sin of man and our own pride and wisdom and ideas, modern theologians, many modern theologians, I should say, have made attempts to soften the immutability of God and wrongly interpret his creation, his incarnation, and his handling of a changing world to be linked then to his nature to shift or change. But this cannot be. As James says it so poignantly in our verse today, he, or with God, is who we're speaking of, there is no variation or shadow due to change. Herman Bavink was a Dutch Reformed theologian, professor in the late 1800s and early 1900s, considered one of the greatest Reformed scholars. And spoke very famously about this topic in a great work called Reform Dogmatics. So, mining into that, here are just a couple really solid quotes to help us understand this better. He says, the difference between the creator and the creatures hinges on the contrast between being and becoming. This means God eternally is what he is, never changing. He cannot change. But the created, you and I, and all other created things, come into being at a point and then is subject to change. Levine goes on to say, those who predicate any change whatsoever of God, whether with respect to his essence or knowledge or will, Now watch this. Diminish all his attributes, all his attributes. His independence, his simplicity, his eternity, his omniscience, his omnipotence. This robs God of his divine nature 
and religion of its firm foundation and assured comfort in an unchanging God. He goes on to say there is change around, about, and outside of him. And there is change in people's relations to him, but there is no change in God himself. Finally, one last quote. Though eternal in himself, with no before or after, God engages the temporal world, condescending as transcendent God to dwell imminently in all created things. So there might be a perceived change in God in how he interacts with his creation in a number of scriptures that we see in the world, in the word of God. In scripture, we see examples whereby it looks as if God is changing or shifting or adjusting his position. I want to highlight a couple of these so that you don't think I okey-doked you and told you one thing and then didn't acknowledge these things. Places like Genesis 6-6, very poignant. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Or places like Exodus 32, 10-14. Verse 14, to just move us along, after Moses pleaded with him to not put his wrath on, on disobedient people, the Lord relented, it says in verse 14, from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. He relented. He didn't do it. How do these perceived testimonies, among others, stand in the midst of other passages that are clear to say God doesn't change his mind and has no regrets? Places that we see this, for example, Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man, that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? Or he has spoken, and will he not fulfill it? For Samuel 15, 29, Also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Either we have a massive issue and that the scriptures stand in contrast to each other, which they cannot do, or we have to rightly read these passages in all of scripture to inform us of how to read them rightly. We must take away here that God, that we cannot make God like man in how things happen. This is what we do all too often. We make him to fit into our box. God has chosen to use a type of speech called anthropomorphic language in Scripture that helps us understand better the ways in which he works, but we must understand that it is not literal. Our Word of Truth Catechism, which we're going to study and begin to study again in the fall, describes anthropomorphic this way. Anthropomorphic, big old fancy word. You're like, hey, what's that mean? Ascribing a human body appearance or functions or parts to something that is not human. 
we must understand that the description of God regretting in Genesis 6-5 is not the same thing as we experience it as created man. Where we, created man, do feel regret and often experience change in mind or action, the anthropomorphic language used in Scripture about God is portraying His righteous anger and wrath on the sin of man. It is metaphorical and not intended to portray the same way that we feel or experience regret. Remember, Scripture didactically, specifically, straightforwardly, definitely says God is not man, that he should change his mind. Numbers 23, 19, I just read that. We also just read 1 Samuel 15, 29. God is not a man that he he should have regret. In our passage today, James 1, 17, in God there is no variation or shadow due to change. These are didactic statements about God. Definitive, defined, straightforward, not metaphorical, not doing something else. These statements are firm in defining God. So we must read then other scriptures that are metaphorical as God choosing to use human terms to communicate another reality beyond the human concept for those terms. To say that God has regrets is to say that God makes mistakes and therefore is not God. It really is as simple as that. He is holy. He is all-knowing. If God changes, if God has regrets, all of those attributes of God go out the door. Do you realize that? That would mean he's not all-knowing. That would mean he discovered something he didn't know. Church, he is perfect in all his ways. Amen? These places in Scripture that seem to portray change in God is not actual change. From our angle or human view, the perceived change is based on all that has changed in creation in relationship to that which is unchanged, our God. We, We are guilty of thinking about God as if he were like a human and framing him up to fit in our box. We're guilty of wanting him to be a certain way. And I'll just say what it is. You have to understand, that is sin in us that wants to pick at the perfection of God. It is we who must adjust, not him. We must repent of this. For it makes the created, us, big, and it makes the creator, God, in our minds, small. It's an effort to bring him down to our level. Instead of undoing what God's word makes clear, here in James 1.17, about the fact that with God there is no variation or shadow due to change, church, we should celebrate it. We are in his mighty and eternal grip. 
in a world that is coming at us from all sides, in bodies that are breaking down every day, in a first creation that will not maintain as it is forever, a culture that does not know truth and whose normal operation is lies and deceit, we are saved We, the people of God, the redeemed of God, are saved and secured by a God that is unchanging. Amen? Oh, I want that to wash over you this morning. God, in his being, perfections, will, purposes, ordinations, and promises does not change in any way. He has always been and will always be exactly the same. That means he will not change his mind about who He has or will save. This means he will fulfill all of his promises. This means he will finish what he started and not stop to change the course. This means nothing can overcome him or persuade him to be or to do other than he perfectly is and set out to do. And even in that, if you're really, really honest, right there, you might be thinking, but I like the idea of being able to persuade God to do something that I think is good or right. And in that, you just got to blow the whistle on yourself and give yourself a big old time out. And realize you who are fleshly do not have a better idea of what is good or right or needed than he who is perfect. Again, it is we who must adjust. It is we who must become sanctified and grow and mature in our faith in Christ. If your soul is longing for faithfulness, for dependability, for certainty, for victory. There is only one place you will ever know those things to be true and ongoing with God. And if you found your way here today in God's sovereign plan, Because you are just done with the lies and the deceit of mankind, the brokenness of the world around you, the the sandbox that continues to let you down. That you would find your anchor in God alone through the perfect work of Christ and his redeeming grace to set you free from sin, to know and live for him the rest of your days. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. 
God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Amen? We are going to stop there today. Because verse 18 is off the hook good. And I can't dare, as I thought I would early on, presume to include it in today's sermon For we're out of time because verse 16 and 17 also were so good. And so I hope that you're excited to come back and dig into verse 18 with us next week. But before you pack up and go, I I want us to revel and, and to rest in and rejoice in the truths that we've just unpacked from verse 16 and 17 of James 1. I want them to move your soul to depend on God and trust in him with your entire life. I want them to cause you to repent of any sinful or misguided way that you've thought about God. That you've thought that he maybe is guilty of our temptations or deceptions. Or for any way by which you have declared God small or weak or maybe thought that he changes or shifts or adjusts. He is the Father of lights, my beloved. Every good and perfect gift is from him. He is worthy of our praise, our trust, our lives. Amen? I just read Psalm 46. We're going to close this morning by singing it out to him together. So stand with me, and I'm going to pray, and then we're going to celebrate in the united song. Father, we thank you for this day that you have made. We thank you for allowing us and ordaining that we would rise out of bed this morning. That our feet would work to balance us as we moved about our morning and prepared to be here. That our mind navigated the road properly, that we didn't drive into a pole or another car. That you allowed this building to stand and gravity to work for the word to be brought forth and a united song to be sung together that you and your sovereign plan are at work in all these things. Oh God, I am sorry for our naivety, for our 
sinful preferences for how things would work, for how we perceived you to work. But that because you ordained that we are here to hear these truths brought forth from your word, that we get to have correction, better knowledge unto wisdom, unto action of living today and if you ordain it tomorrow in such a way where we worship you rightly where we do not blame you for temptation or deception but we long to fight these things we long to fight feelings that long for comfort and fleshly preferences and momentary experiences over the eternal good and glory of you, our God, and all that you set forth before us. And yeah, the world's coming at us. Maybe even great trial awaits us in this afternoon. That we'd rise up in faith, that we'd endure to make much of your holy name, clinging to the blessing that is Christ and life with you forever, announcing to a sin-sick world, the good news of Jesus that sets people free. And so to you, O oh God, we worship the Father of lights, for you are good and worthy to be praised. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.